turn in God's word to the book of Ezra and to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 13. So just to quickly give the context, um, Israel has begun again to build the temple at the word of God. There's been an inquiry as to whether this is legitimate. The word was sent to Darius, the emperor, and it's come back now that, yes, a decree has been found from Cyrus, the previous emperor, and the work is to be carried out. In fact, it's not to be hindered and it's to be provided for. So we're cutting in now at the after, after reading that response from the emperor Darius. So Ezra 6 and verse 13. Then Tatnai, governor on this side the river, Shethar Bosnai and their companions, according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily. And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity, kept the dedication of this house of God with joy, and offered at the dedication of this house of God an hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel, Twelve he goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the fourteenth day of the first month, for the priests and the Levites were purified together, all of them were pure and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity, and for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land, to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat, and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful, and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And we end there at the end of chapter 6. We trust the Lord to bless even the reading of the word. But let's, um, let's just bow together in prayer and seek help. Lord, we pray for thy mercies to us now. We're conscious that it is the entrance of thy word that giveth light. And we pray, Lord, for the work of thy spirit. Give us eyes to see the light. Give us hearts to receive the command of thee, our God, even the instruction and the gracious promises. We pray for help for each one to 
respond aright to the word and even to that end give help to myself with that solemn task of proclaiming the word. Help me to do it faithfully. Help me to preach in a way that is glorifying to Christ that he might be seen uh, and that you would cultivate godliness in our hearts, even drawing us to Christ and strengthening our faith and helping us to walk with thee, our God. Undertake for us now then, we ask, in the name of our Saviour. Amen. Amen. Uh, Way back in the book of Exodus, uh, Israel was led out of Egypt uh, through the Red Sea, and in that moment they were free. But although they were free when they came through the Red Sea, there's a sense in which they weren't yet fully established. It wasn't really until they arrived at Mount Sinai. It was then when they received the law of God and at the instruction of God they set up the tabernacle. It was then that they began to function and to worship as a nation in the way that God desired. Well, you know, there's something of a parallel in the book of Ezra because already in the book God has done mighty things for his people. He's gathered them. He's reestablished them as a nation. Uh, Like their forefathers were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, they've been redeemed out of their captivity in Babylon. Uh, And now they find themselves gathered as God's people in their own place. And yes, the Lord has done great things for them. But just like when God redeemed Israel from Egypt and that, you could say that redemption was brought to full maturity uh, whenever they came to Mount Sinai and the law was given and the tabernacle was set up and they began to worship God in that established God-revealed manner. Well, well now these children of the captivity come to a similar point. Uh, By the mercy of God, not only now have they been gathered out of Babylon, but finally, finally after years, the temple has been built. Finally now, Israel can get back to worshipping God in God's revealed way. Uh, Last week, we looked at just this overview of of events when the people arose at the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. They began to serve God and to build, and God undertook for them. He turned the heart of Darius toward them so that when word was sent to to Darius, uh, not only were they allowed to keep building, but the, the work was protected and there were provisions given to it. And the Lord had done great things even there. And so they built and they prospered. And finally, in verse 15 of this chapter 6, in the sixth year of Darius, about about 20 years after the temple foundation was originally laid, it says that the house was finished on the third day of the month Adar. That's the last month in the Jewish calendar year. And you know what a thrill it must have been for you know, the last little details to be put in place at the house of God and the builders and the workers could step back and take a breath and rejoice. It's finally done. This really was the climax that everything has been building toward when God first moved Cyrus to send Israel or to let Israel return home. And so what follows is quite appropriately a scene of worship as the people dedicate this newly built temple to God and they respond with praise and adoration to the wonderful things that God has done for them. As we look at the end of this chapter today, we're thinking about the people of Israel as they really respond to God's redemption. 
Now, and as we consider their response, you know, let's appreciate that for any of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, uh, we've likewise been redeemed. Uh, we've been redeemed from not Egypt, not Babylon, but from the even greater tyranny of Satan himself. We've been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Uh, and for any of us who are saved, we ought to take in this scene in Ezra 6. And there should be a similar response of worship and praise in our hearts as we think of the great things that God has done for us. Of course, for any who are not saved, as we would take in this scene of worship and celebration in the presence of God, the gospel, of course, would invite others to come and to know God's redemption by looking to Christ. And then it would urge us to enter into this glad worship of Almighty God. So we're thinking together about this wonderful scene as the temple is dedicated, as the people celebrate their first Passover, having the temple there. And we're thinking about Israel's worshipful response to redemption. Israel's worshipful response to redemption. Now, first of all, notice that Israel responded with joyful worship. This whole scene is saturated with joy. In uh, verse 16, the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the children of of the captivity, they all kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. With joy. It's a day of tremendous celebration, a day of gladness as the people gather together and they they bask in what God has done for them. Uh, You read in verse 19 about events just a month later when the children of Israel were able to keep the Passover and the connected feast of unleavened bread. And again it says in verse 22, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. They kept it with joy. This was no religious drudgery. This was joyful service of God, joyful worship. And it gives the reason. Why are they joyful? Well, the end of verse 22 says, they're joyful for the Lord had made them joyful. And turned the heart of the king of Assyria onto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. It's saying, God has been with them. God has undertaken for them. He's even turned the heart of Darius to favor them. God has strengthened their hands for the work. And it is by God's blessing, by God's power, by God's work, that everything has been done, that the temple has been finished. In all of this, it is God who has done great things and God who has therefore made them glad. Joy is the appropriate response. You know, likewise, for any of us who know the greater deliverance of Christ from the tyranny of Satan, for we who know God's redeeming work out of our sin and misery, the appropriate response at all times is joy. Now, I know life isn't always easy. There can, can be plenty of hardships to face. At times, it's quite appropriate when we're you know, grieving over difficulties. But alongside that, there should also be an undercurrent of joy, joy in the Lord, joy in our hearts. I mean, think of it. Christ has died for us. His blood has cleansed us from all our sin. We're delivered from the grip of Satan. We have a sure hope set before us, even everlasting life, so that we'll never perish The gospel reassures us that God is for us. What is there that could legitimately or that should ever legitimately quench all of that and steal our joy altogether? Now, yes, there might be real sorrows to face, but even then, 
how can it undo all of these wonderful things that the gospel has supplied for us? We of all people should be a joyful people. And if we're not joyful, if we're not joyful as we ought to be joyful, well then perhaps it's because we've gotten our eyes off the wonderful things that God has done for us. And if we would only take in afresh, even on a regular basis, and make it our meat and drink to feed upon the gospel and to marvel at the goodness of God to us in Christ, well, that would surely stir up joy in our soul. If you think about the nation of Israel, they were, they were celebrating the goodness of God. And I'm sure as they looked around themselves, they would have been able to pick out enemies. I'm, I'm sure if they let their minds roam, they could have easily fastened their attention on all kinds of obstacles that might lie up ahead and they could be tempted to get bogged down in all the the possible troubles that they would face. But this was a time for joy. This was a day for gladness in the presence of God. It was a day for standing back in amazement. Our God has done great things for us in light of what the Lord has done. Why should they not be glad? Even if there are still enemies in the land, even if there are still difficulties, why should they not be glad? Well, likewise for us, for any of us who know Christ, there may well be hardships. In fact, there will. But the word of God commands us. Take Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And you meditate upon the gospel, make it your meat and drink, you'll find there is every reason for joy no matter what the circumstances of life might be, God has done enough to make us joyful. So Israel responded to God's redeeming work with joyful worship. Notice also that they responded with costly worship. Costly worship. Verse 17 tells us about a fairly significant offering which was made at the dedication of the temple. Uh, The people offered 100 bullocks, they offered 200 rams, and they offered 400 400 lambs, uh, as well as 12 he-goats. Now, I say that it was a significant offering, but it does actually, it looks like absolutely nothing. Uh, compared to, say, the dedication of the temple in the days of Solomon. When Solomon set up the original temple, uh, Second Chronicles 7 says that in that day, uh, the people offered 22,000 oxen. They offered 120,000 sheep. You could say, well, look at this, and what are 100 bullocks compared to 22,000 oxen? Uh, what are 200 rams and 400 lambs compared to 120,000 sheep? It seems very insignificant. But of course, you can bear in mind that in Solomon's day, Israel was really at the heights of its power as an independent kingdom in the earth. It was at its most glorious extent. They'd conquered all sorts of enemies around them. They were extremely prosperous as a nation under the blessing of God. Things are very, very different in the days of Zerubbabel. This was a day of small things. The people simply weren't able to make as extravagant an offering as in the days of Solomon. But given their circumstances, it was still a very significant thing when all these various animals were offered in dedication to God. And there's no hint that any grumbling or complaining over these sacrifices, no 
hint of any begrudging the fact that they should give to God. No, it was quite appropriate that they freely give unto the God who has done so much for them. The Lord has done so much. Why should they hold back from God? Now, there is a similar principle when it comes to this gospel age. Uh, For any of us who've been delivered by God through the the work of Christ, is it not appropriate that we have a heart to respond with even costly service? In fact, in light of the lengths that God has gone to redeem you, is there ever anything really that is too costly, that is too much for God to ask of us, that God doesn't really deserve for you to give? Obviously, today we don't bring animals to be sacrificed on the altar, but in the book of Romans, Paul does speak of an altar. He, he sets out the gospel, first of all, step by step throughout the opening chapters, in fact, most of the book, and he highlights what God has done for sinners in Christ. He starts off, you know, the first number of chapters speak of really bringing everyone down. We're all fallen in sin. We're all unfit for God. We're, we're all corrupted. There's none of us is righteous, no, not one. He stresses this over the first number of chapters. And then it also shows us in that context how God has stepped in with love and mercy and has taken us to himself in Christ, raised us up, forgiven our sins, how God is with his people and blessing us and has turned everything around for us. And he sets out this wonder of the gospel, what God has done. And then he gets to chapter 12 and gives the response that should be seen in our lives. He says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, when it says present your bodies, the Holy Spirit is really emphasizing present everything that you are. Lay everything down upon the altar. Lay the fullness of your life down. Hold nothing back. Let your life be that sacrifice, burning unto God, burning for God upon the altar. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, that's too much. But the verse continues, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. It's not extravagant. It's not out of the ordinary. It's not beyond any expectation. This is just your reasonable service. This is the The only reasonable, the only appropriate response to God's redeeming work, that you place your life on the altar, that it's given to God. He has redeemed you from your sin, from your misery, from an eternity in hell. He has brought you to himself. He has given you life. What can be held back? It's reasonable. Anything less is unreasonable. It's reasonable to place your life, place place your body upon the altar for God. You know, after all, as one who was on your way to hell, you have immense blessing. And it's because of the love of Christ when he laid down his life upon, you could say, the altar, certainly upon the cross. And for you, the only reasonable response is to engage in costly worship. Now, obviously that's something that's massively neglected in the church today, and let's face it, probably neglected in our hearts too quite often. You know, we all want to celebrate the wonderful things that God has done for us, all that he's given for us. We want to rejoice in the grace that God bestows upon us. 
We want to take the comforts that the gospel supplies, the hope that it grants, and and we certainly can. But so often we neglect to go as far as this reasonable response of costly worship, costly service. We, We neglect this response, I'm bought with a price, I am the Lord's, he is worthy. You know, as you're going about the week ahead, as Satan tempts you to go astray, or, or maybe as opportunities to serve the Lord would present themselves, keep this in mind. For any of us who are the Lord's, keep this in mind. You are redeemed out of your sin, and you're redeemed for God. Your life is his, and the reasonable response is costly service, costly worship, serving God, not only in the easy bits, not only when it suits, but even at cost, at expense. Are you responding aright to the gospel with a readiness to place your life on the altar, to let it be a sacrifice given to God, the best of your life for him? This is what the gospel calls for. It's not an extravagant thing. This is for for God's people. This is what the gospel calls for. Now, to take this passage in Ezra and compare it to, say, the dedication of Solomon's temple, where there was 22,000 oxen, given to God. Well, you you might say, well, I don't have 22,000 oxen. I don't have, I don't feel like I've got very much to give unto God. I've only got a little. Well, if you don't have the 22,000 oxen, if you're you're a bit like the day of small things in Zerubbabel's day and you've only got the 100 oxen, well, whatever you have, in fact, even if it's just the two mites that the, the Christ saw the widow throwing into the temple treasury, even if it's just that, use what you have. For God, that's what your Redeemer deserves. That's what's reasonable. Use your life for God. Israel responded to God's redemption with this joyful worship and with costly worship. They also responded with united worship. One of the things I think that's quite striking is that when Israel offered these various sacrifices at the dedication of the temple, You notice that along with all the other bulls and rams and lambs, they offered 12 he-goats. And that specific number 12 was chosen for good reason. Verse 17 says that they offered 12 he-goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. there's, There's one goat offered for each of the tribes. And so... What's happening there is that all of the tribes of Israel are being represented. Now, that's quite an important detail. You might not think much of it at first glance, but it's quite important when you bear in mind the history of Israel. I mean, shortly after the days of King Solomon, many years before this, the united nation of Israel was ripped into two parts. At that point, Judah and Benjamin um, held together in the south, They formed, well, it was really known as the kingdom of Judah, and they continued to follow the kings that descended from David and Solomon. Then you had the ten northern tribes, and they formed a totally separate independent kingdom. It got known as Israel, but it's a a different kingdom from Judah in the south. And since that time, Israel was divided. You had Israel in the north, you had Judah in the south, and at times, these two kingdoms were actually in conflict with each other. You know, seeking alliances with other, other nations and opposed to one another. 
there's a sense in which from that point on, there was no more 12 tribes of Israel, at least not in any united sense. There was no togetherness. These people had been ripped apart. Then add to that that eventually the Assyrian Empire came in and as an instrument in God's hand, they carried northern Israel away. And at that point, the ten northern tribes were effectively gone. All that was left was Judah and Benjamin in the south. Of course, eventually they were carried off into Babylon too. Now the people have returned to the promised land and the return is mostly made up of people from Judah. It's mostly people from the tribe of Judah, perhaps Benjamin as well, that are gathering back to Israel. There are probably others who descended from the other tribes of Israel, but in the main, these are the people of Judah and Benjamin. And in light of that background, I feel it's quite striking that after all those years of division, and even though Judah is very much in the majority here, when they dedicate the temple to God, there is recognition This is a place where we are united. We are brought together and we approach God together as fellow worshippers. All the past division and conflict and all of that, that's that's put away here. We're brought together to respond to what God has done for us and and his great work for us unites us again. We're, we're We're a people together again. There are 12 tribes represented here again. All 12 represented. One goat for each tribe. The time has come for division to be set aside. Now, similarly, in this gospel age, this is to be one of the impacts of the gospel. It's to bring together uh, people who have been divided. Any of the old divisions are meant to be healed. We're, We're called together by the wonder of God's grace to stand together as brethren, as sisters in Christ, and to rejoice together in the goodness of God that that brings us and and makes us one body in Christ. It's one of the reasons there's to be no division between us, no foolish infighting among the people of God, because we we stand together united by our God, united by our Savior, united by the Spirit, united, united in the gospel. We're told in Ephesians 4 to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we're told there's one body, one spirit, you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See, the the gospel unites and it should hold us together as a people, redeemed together by Jesus Christ. Can Can I point out another detail as you think about this united worship of the people of God? If you look down at the final verses of the chapter, it's telling us about events just a month after the dedication of the temple. And the people are celebrating the Passover and they're keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread together. And they're rejoicing again together in what God has done for them. And it's worth noticing who was involved. Verse 21 says concerning the Passover feast that the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity. There there's some who did eat, the, the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity. By the way, notice Israel here is being used not of that ten tribe northern Israel from previous days. No, it's being used again in that united sense, all the people of God. The children of Israel, they did eat. There was participation there. But that's not all. 
It also says, and, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel. Now that's, that's talking about Gentiles who have separated from their old ways of life. Gentiles who have left their polluted heathen practices behind to join with Israel in seeking the one true God. And notice there's a place for them. They too are able to come and to eat together in this Passover feast and in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's a place for them. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned the Samaritans who were there in the land. They wanted to come and to join in the building efforts and to build the temple along with the Lord's people. And they were excluded. They were not allowed. They were put away. And the reason was they never wanted to give up their ungodly religions. They wanted to merge their false religions in with the true worship of God. And quite rightly, they were rejected. They're put away. Here, though, are Gentiles who have set aside their old foolish ways. They have separated themselves from the filthiness of the heathen of the land. They've separated from all of that ungodly pollution. And they've come and they've joined with Israel and they've become part of the people of God. Sometimes we forget that Old Testament Israel, even then, was not merely the ethnic people who biologically descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Even in the Old Testament, there was always a place for Gentiles, even then. For example, even at the Exodus from Egypt, Exodus 12 verse 38 speaks about a mixed multitude of other peoples who left Egypt with Israel. We don't always think about this, but there were like of Egyptians and others who came out of Egypt with Israel and went with them to the promised land. They essentially became part of Israel. Even in the Old Testament, true Israel was never just the biological children of Abraham. Even then, it was always the spiritual people of God. It was always the people who trusted their God and who walked with God by faith. And even then, there was a place for Gentiles. That's why when Abraham conquered Jericho, Rahab was preserved and she was incorporated into the nation. She trusted the Lord. In fact, she became one of the, one of the, one of the descendants of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why Ruth, the Moabites, another Gentile, had a place in Israel. She'd come under the wing of the Lord, under his care. Well, here, there was a place for believing Gentiles who turned from their foolish ways and who came to worship the Lord. And they were able to stand with ethnic Israelites. They could enter into the heritage of Israel. They could rejoice together in the great things that God had done for them. Even in the Old Testament, our God has always stretched out his arms to this world and has even in those days invited the whosoever will to come and to be numbered among his redeemed people. I mean, think of the invitation that Moses gave to Hobab in Numbers 10, verse 29. He says, we're journeying on to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you. Come thou with us and we will do thee good for the Lord hath spoken good concerning Israel. Hobab was a Gentile, but Moses says, God has spoken good concerning Israel. Come with us. Come and join us. Come along for the ride. Come along and be part of the number. You actually find that 
It seems he did respond to that invitation, and his descendants were later recorded there in Israel. Well, today the same offer goes out to a world that is all at sea, a world of confusion and chaos, and the Lord sends forth his gospel perhaps in an even more obvious way, even in greater extents today, and like it's always been. The whosoever will may come and be joined to God's people by being joined with Christ. You know, the one who's been a stranger to grace and to God, the good news of the gospel goes out and says there's a savior from sin. Through faith in Christ, you can be numbered among the saints. You can enter in. If you come to Christ, you might only have been saved for a minute, but you stand shoulder to shoulder on equal footing with any who've been walking with God for years. You think of it. Here are Gentiles who've separated from the pollutions of the heathen nations and they've come and they don't have the same heritage as Zerubbabel and others but they come and they stand shoulder to shoulder and they are together, they are united together on equal footing in the Saviour. Well, there's a place here, there's a place among the people of God for any who would come to Christ no matter how long how long there's been wandering away from the Lord no matter how many years have been wasted The invitation is to come, to join the number, to stand on equal footing with all the other saints of God who who rest in Christ. The gospel invitation is come, draw near, stand with the people of God, rejoice together on that same foundation of Christ and his great salvation. So we're thinking about Israel's worshipful response to God's redemption. They responded with, Worship that was joyful and costly and united. Notice also that they responded with holy worship. Holy worship. You could say separated worship, sanctified worship. When God redeems us, he calls for his people to be a holy people. We're to be holy as he is holy. The Lord seeks a people who will worship him in the beauty of holiness. And that's what the people sought to do in the days of Zerubbabel. Now, your first question might be, how is it even possible for sinners such as us to worship God with true holiness? I mean, there's not one of us righteous, no, not one. There's none of us who measure up to God's standard. There's none of us who've kept our hands clean. None of us who've kept our hearts pure. So there's none of us that can stand before the holy, searching eyes of our God, how can we even begin to worship God in the beauty of holiness? Well, the very basis of it, the foundation, is reliance upon the mercy of God in Christ. A little earlier, I mentioned the sacrifices at the dedication of the temple. Pointed out there were 12 he-goats, numbered as sin offerings. One represented each of the tribes of Israel. When a sin offering was made for the congregation of God's people, the animal was killed and its blood was collected. The priest was to dip his finger in the blood of the animal and he'd he'd bring it inside the tabernacle or the temple and he would sprinkle it in front of the veil that led into the Holy of Holies. He, He was presenting the blood, as it were, before the face of God. He also put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar and I suppose the idea in the sin offering was, was that the sin of the people had so defiled them and had defiled really everything around them that sin pollutes everything. 
that it needs to be cleansed. And the way of cleansing is through the sacrifice and through the blood of the sacrifice. The sin offering really emphasizes that their sin had defiled everything and that without cleansing there could be no fellowship with God. As the people here dedicate the newly built temple and they begin to resume worship of God at the temple, that they would have been very aware that because of their sin, they'd first been led into captivity. It was because of their sin and rebellion that they had been removed from the, the promised land in, in the first place. In fact, they said as much back in chapter 5, verse 12, when they gave their explanation to the officials. They told them that they were building again the, the house which had been built previously by a great king of Israel. He said in verse 12, But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven unto wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. They were very aware. We are a guilty people. Our fathers provoked God. We were in rebellion. That's why we were carried away into captivity. We were guilty. I'm sure some of them still were aware of the, the guilt of neglecting building the temple for all those years until Haggai and Zechariah stood up. They were a guilty people. And as they come and as they seek to draw near to God, they're very aware that they need cleansing from their sin. When these sin offerings were made, there was very much the picture of that cleansing. The, the washing away of all the defilement. Their, their sin had polluted everything. And yet, it's all being washed away by the blood of the sacrifice. It's all being cleansed. It's all being washed so that these sinners, the, the tribes of Israel, can again draw near to God and have fellowship with God again. You know, the basis upon which they could offer clean and acceptable worship in the sight of God was through the cleansing of this blood sacrifice. And of course, the Old Testament system, as I've often said, it was really just like an elaborate object lesson. It set forth gospel truths before the eyes of the people, and it really finds its fulfillment in Christ. The blood of bulls and goats could never deal with sin. Christ can. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, that the Savior went to the cross and he laid down his life and his blood was shed. And his blood could do in reality what the blood of bulls and goats only pictures. His blood in reality can wash away the defilement of our sin. It can cleanse, it, cleanse the defilement fully. Our God deserves holy worship, clean worship, sanctified worship. And you know, the only starting place for that, the only starting place is the work of Christ. Without the cleansing of Christ's blood, there is no approaching God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. None of it put away, and therefore no access to God, no acceptable worship. Let me stress that for any who would seek to engage in Christian activity and Christian worship, but without actually resting in Christ and trusting him, just going through the Christian motions. Well, you might go through the motions, but you're not drawing near to God. You're not worshipping him acceptably in the beauty of holiness. The only starting place for holy and acceptable worship of God is the cleansing found through the blood of Christ. 
And yet the good news of the gospel comes to us. The sacrifice has been made. Christ has died. His blood has been shed. And today you can come unto God, not in your own merit, not just marching into God's presence, assuming that you're good enough, but you can come resting in Christ by faith, cleansed by his blood. You can worship God in the beauty of holiness as a sinner saved and washed by Christ. Is it through Christ that you're seeking to come unto God? Through, through him? Are you drawing near to God on the basis of his mercy given in Christ? Are you resting on the blood of Christ as your grounds of acceptance with God? That's the only starting place. It's the only basis. Can I point out as well that for each of these tribes of Israel... It was the very same offering that was made for each tribe. It was one he-goat per tribe. And I think that's significant because throughout Israel's history, all the tribes were guilty in various ways. All of them had rebelled against God, which is why they'd ended up in exile. But I think it's fair to say that if you tried to make a tally across their history, Judah has been overall the much more faithful tribe than, say, the tribes of northern Israel. I mean, ever since the kingdom was divided, northern Israel never walked with God. They never had a godly king. They had abandoned the temple of God. They didn't follow um, God's law appropriately. They were led by wicked rulers, and they came under God's judgment a long time before Judah ever faced exile. In the meantime, Judah had their fair share of sin as well, but they also had seasons of walking with God, times of revival, times of restoration, and if you were to put them side by side, you might say, well, well, well yes, both are guilty, but, but Israel, northern Israel is much more guilty. Judah, the tribe of Judah, is much less guilty than, say, the tribe of Ephraim. And yet, despite that, when it comes to this moment, when the people are, of God are gathered to stand before the Lord, it's the very same sacrifice for Judah and for Ephraim. You might try and rank them as to how great their sin is compared to the next tribe, but before God, they're all in the same position. They're all sinners. They all need cleansing. And the one sacrifice is sufficient. Whether Judah, whether Ephraim, whether great sinners, whether slightly lesser great sinners, the one sacrifice is the same. Again, those sin offerings, they're just a picture of what is actually accomplished through Christ. But, you know, what a comfort there should be for any of us as we come to worship our God that no matter how guilty we might feel our past to have been, the one sacrifice that saves the most righteous sinner in the world, if such a thing can be said, is the same sacrifice that saves the most guilty. The same sacrifice that is needed for the most decent good living sinner it's the same sacrifice that redeems and rescues and cleanses the most defiled and despicable sinner you know if you seek to draw near to god thankfully no matter how great your sin has been christ is a sufficient savior his sacrifice is enough it's enough for the clean living sinner it's enough for the despised the despicable sinner Christ is sufficient. 
And Christ is perfectly sufficient. Nothing needs added. The gospel then invites us to come, to draw near to God, and to worship in the beauty of holiness through this Redeemer who cleanses us from sin. Now, of course, along with reliance on Christ's mercy, there is the practicality of worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. Even here in the passage, you see, for example, in verse um, in verse 20, that the priests and the Levites, they were purified together. All of them were pure and they killed the Passover for the children of the captivity. There's this intentional effort to set aside all corruption and to use the ceremonial purifying systems of, of those days to, to come before God in cleanliness. You, you read in verse 21 about the the people who had separated themselves onto God from the filthiness of the heathen of the land. There was a, a real repentance and a real leaving aside of sin and corruption. And of course, today, as we seek to draw near to God, we can't come and, and claim to be worshippers of God in the one hand while holding on to all sorts of sins and corruption in the other. We don't come and play the hypocrite before God. No, he calls for a people who will worship in the beauty of holiness. Thankfully, Christ has died to make us clean. Thankfully, Christ gives power to sustain us and to, and to enable us to overcome sin more and more in our lives. And, and where there is defilement, praise God, we retreat again to Christ. But we're to be a people turned from sin, leaving aside corruption, leaving aside filthiness, looking onto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, resting in his blood and drawing near to God to worship in the beauty of holiness. He is the great redeeming God who has done immense things for us, he is worthy of such worship. So the invitation here is, come through Christ, yield your life to him, come and worship in the beauty of holiness. May the Lord help us to respond aright to the wonder of the gospel, to the wonder of God's great redemption, with, to come with joy to come even with a sacrificial heart, ready to give of ourselves to God, to come in unity with the saints of God redeemed alongside us and to come rejoicing in Christ and worshiping in the beauty of holiness for the glory of the God who deserves it all. He has done all things well. Let's bow together in prayer.